Welcome back to Financial Therapy. It's not just about the money. I'm personal financial planner, columnist, and financial therapist, Rick Kaler. Research tells us that 90% of all financial decisions are made emotionally, not logically. For nearly four decades, I've been helping people make better money decisions. So what makes my financial worldview different from most financial experts? I blend the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them. Good money decisions are not just about the money. So let's get started with today's episode. Welcome back to another edition. Just wanted to mention a couple months ago, I started an experiment, open office hours. So once a month, I um, have some time scheduled, usually on a Friday at 4.30 Mountain Standard Time, 4.30 p.m. And uh, it's just reserved for people that have questions about financial therapy. It's called uh, Talking Financial Therapy with Rick Kaler, and you can find a sign-up page on the Advanced Wellbeing website. That's uh, advanced-wellbeing.com, and you would click on the Events tab, and it'll take you to a sign-up sheet. Limit that to uh, 10 people per session, but it's been well-received, and it was um, a response to uh, to getting, I get a lot of calls from folks wanting to uh, talk to me about financial therapy, uh, a lot of practitioners oftentimes, uh, but sometimes the, the public that have questions. And this is uh, a way that I can spend that time and then benefit many people at one time, so... I think it's a better learning experience for the listeners and um, leverages my time as well. So check that out if uh, you'd like to join us for a session. I thought today I'd talk about something that I've never (laughs) talked about before. (laughs) I keep running into these topics. And this this is around the dynamics, the emotional dynamics of purchasing a home. And I was in real estate, oh heck, for a long time. I I got my uh, salesperson's license when I was 18. I think I became the youngest person ever to hold a uh, real estate license in South Dakota. And then I got my broker's license at the age of 19, which is scary, which means I could run a firm. And becoming the youngest broker ever in the South Dakota. And I uh, I was involved in the real estate business. Oh, man. Um, I'm trying to remember when I really, really finally got out of it. I think it was probably in the early 2000s. But I was involved initially in selling residential real estate and then moved pretty quickly into specializing in commercial and investment properties and then became a general certified appraiser. So, I don't know, I spent probably a good 30 years in that uh, particular industry. I I, uh, remember the time that we spent, especially in resident, when I was selling residential real estate, of um, learning scripts, learning, going over objections, doing role-playing around objections. And I hated it. Oh, I hated role-playing. 
And it was so much work trying to figure out, okay, now if they object to this, then this is what you say. And then if they raise this objection, this is what you say. When I started doing my own personal money work and saw how formalized and manipulative that that process was, there, there was no reason that it, or no wonder that it didn't resonate with me. And I thought, man, alive, I would have loved to have known the communication skills uh, about money scripts and money psychology and uh, learning how to drop my agenda and really deeply listen to, uh, to clients back in the days that I was doing real estate. And I, I was relatively successful, not because I'm a great salesperson, but probably more because I was really detailed and I really knew my stuff when it came to commercial investment properties. So anyway, the whole point of that is I've had a lot of experience in, uh, in real estate. And I am engaged in co-authoring a new book called Coupleship Inc. from Financial Conflict to Financial Intimacy with Deb Kaplan. And we had a home buying story in the book that kind of reminded me of the dynamics of, uh, of buying a house. And so this isn't the, the specific uh, scenario from the book, but it, it, it's a scenario that was very well known to me. So I'm going to give you the story of Tyler and Kristen. And they were a young couple. They had one child. Um, she was pregnant with another one on the way. And their little two-bedroom home in Rapid City uh, just wasn't going to cut it. Like uh, 768 square foot. We call it a Robbinsdale home, which was in the, uh, that's a subdivision of Rapid City. And they, uh, they really wanted a four-bedroom house so that they wouldn't have to move again to accommodate another child if they decide to have a third child. Uh, their fleet of vehicles was expanding, and in the past they were able to get along with one car garage, but now they could really use a two-car garage. Room for three would have even been better. Uh, they wanted a newer home. That house they were in was 40, 50, 60 years old. So they wanted a new home that, you know, was high quality, maybe a little bit above the average. They definitely didn't want any fix-up. Wanted a functional floor plan. Wanted it close to schools. In uh, today's dollars, they had a budget of spending no more than $400,000. So they looked at a bunch of houses and and uh, they were working with a realtor and told the realtor what they were looking for. And uh, the realtor showed them a bunch of houses. Not everything completely fit what, uh, what they asked for, which is not atypical of, the, of, the, of that process. Uh, and they slimmed it all down to two houses. First house on the list just checked all the boxes. It was five years old, really well built, located in a, a real typical newer subdivision. The uh, floor plan was really functional, had 
four bedrooms, plenty of room for expansion, a three-car garage, and it was priced really reasonable at the lower end of the of the price range at three hundred seventy-five thousand, and that was well within their budget. You know, even a little bit under under that represented a really great value. The second home was smaller, and its three bedrooms had just enough room for the family as it existed. There wasn't a fourth bedroom and no way to get a fourth bedroom. The house was old. It was 75 years old, located in uh, the West Boulevard area of our city, which uh, is primarily made up of older homes. It needed modernizing, probably needed about $50,000 of work, but it was storybook looking. Two-story Cape Cod-styled home nestled kind of up against the pines on a two-acre lot with lots of forage and really nice, nice pine trees. The floor plan, well, it uh, in the real estate business, we called it having character. <laughs> it wasn't the most functional. The house only had a one-car garage, typical of many older homes, and it was priced at the high end of its range. And it was priced well over their budget. It was priced at $450,000. When comparing the two houses, first house was the obvious no-brainer. It was clearly the best choice that ticked all the boxes. Tyler and Christian, or, or Kirsten, sorry, decided the second house was the one. Now, as is logical as a decision that that appeared to be, it was completely logical when we understood more of the story. What they didn't consciously recognize is that 80 to 100% of financial decisions are made emotionally, not logically. And it would appear to be that it's pretty illogical decision to buy the second home. But both of them had a subconscious money script that Emotional connection to a house is the most important feature of a home. While purchasing the uh, Cape Cod house was illogical when viewed through the money script of the most important aspect of purchasing a house is functionality, space, and finances, that wasn't their money script. So purchasing the second home even though it almost had nothing of what they had on their list that they were looking for, made perfect sense. Ask any real estate agent, Tyler and and, uh, Kirsten's Kirsten's, uh, experience is pretty normal. If if a buyer has some flexibility in what they can afford and, and able to push the parameters of what they can afford, most buyers are going to make home buying decisions emotionally rather than practically or financially. <laughs> There's an adage amongst real estate agents that goes, buyers are liars. Now, of course, this isn't true in the deepest sense. Buyers are never outright liars, but they're always acting in congruence with their deeply held beliefs. And they often don't know what those deeply held beliefs are. 
I think probably uh, the real estate agents might be more accurate if they adopted the phrase, buyers don't always act in their own best interest. Now, that is accurate, but they're typically always acting in congruence with their deeply held money scripts or belief. Now, I mean, this isn't necessarily wrong or bad. Most uh, major decisions, like buying a house, require an emotional component to meet our needs. I'll give you another story, which is mine. My wife and I were looking for a new home. We had a two-story. I don't know if it was Cape Cod, but it was a two-story home in Rapid City in the Boulevard area. And our family was growing. So we finally decided to uh, look for a new home. And Marsha would look at look at homes and then uh, find those that she liked. And then I'd go out and take a look at them. I was looking for something that had some warmth to it, some what I would call intimacy or richness. Uh, I I love uh, like English style homes, so I like a lot of wood, and I don't like big rooms. I like a lot of small rooms. Uh, Marcia, on the other hand, really wanted something in the pines and something with a view. So she would find a house, and typically homes in our area that are in the pines that would have a view are often like log cabin homes or very open, very open houses, not very formal houses, and usually have like great rooms where there's no dining room, living room, or kitchen as such. They're all in one huge room. And I'd walk in and, yeah, gee, it just just didn't fit, just didn't fit. And finally, one day, she says, oh, you got to come see this house. <laughs> so I went up in this area, and at the top of this hill, there's this double-wide trailer home. And I'm like, this is it? Yeah. And I'm just kind of stunned, because this was not at all what I had in mind. And she she did. She hardly even went into the house. She's standing outside going, look at this view. And it was a 360 degree view. It was stunning. And in that moment, I got it. What was important to Marsha was a view. <laughs> and what was important to me was the house. So uh, we finally found a house that I walked into and and I said, yeah, I, you know, I, I think this one, I think this one would do. Uh, while she was out on the deck admiring the beautiful view. And that's the house we bought. What? How long ago was that? 22 years ago? And that we're still in. And those of you that are watching the podcast, this is, this is the office of that house. So it, it's really important when we're making major buying decisions that we really try to boil down to the bedrock of what is it that really emotionally resonates with me. And, you know, what was it with Marcia? What, what did a view mean to her? What did lots of wood in smaller rooms and a more intimate feel mean to me? What part of myself did that appeal to? Was it a 
appealing to, um, say, exiled parts that may be trying to get their needs met through various things. And again, it, it can be anything, anything. Or just preferences of um, parts that, that aren't necessarily wounded at all. Are there, are there uh, protective parts of us that are making the decisions as to what feels safe versus just more uh, clean wants and needs? So these are all things to really ponder when we're making any type of a, a purchase is what does it mean to me? And, and like the initial list that Tyler and Kirsten, what they went through, so often our lists are shoulds and oughts. Well, we should get a house close to school, and we should get some more space, and we should get a three-car garage. And those shoulds and oughts can come from a number of different places and it's just fascinating when we meet our emotional needs the needs of our parts those shoulds and oughts go right out the window like oh i guess we can get along with a one-car garage because this lot is so phenomenal well what does it mean having a large lot with a lot of foliage there could just be a part of them that feels so nurtured in nature it could remind them of a childhood home or uh, who knows how many things. But that was like number one on the list, but it made not a lot of sense financially or functionally. And so we tend to hang with those shoulds and oughts and then ignore the real emotional things. Like you've probably done this yourself or heard people say, certainly realtors hear this all the time. They'll ask, well, what, what are you looking for in a home? And a person may say, you know, I'm not positive, but I'll know it when I see it. So that's kind of the intangible work to do, whether it's looking for a home or looking for a, a car or any major purchase, is what needs am I trying to solve? What feelings do I want? to have with what I'm purchasing and what are the needs around those, uh, those feelings. That's, that's really important to, uh, to consider because so many of us believe that our perceptions and our decisions are objective and in our best interest. In fact, one of the questions on the intake that we use in our financial planning firm is, it's a statement that says, I make my financial decisions emotionally. And then we ask the person to rate that on a one to five. One being absolutely not, five being yeah, all the time. And it's uh, interesting how many people will select one. Absolutely not. I don't make my decisions emotionally. <laughs> now, just because they believe that doesn't make it so, right? We all know that 80 to 100% of all financial decisions are made emotionally. So that, that gives us a clue as to how aware a person is around how they make decisions in um, 
they, they are not aware of how emotional their decisions are. So when our buying decisions are prompted by unconscious beliefs about money, unconscious money scripts, by exiles with unfinished business, by those traumatized parts of us, there's a huge chance that our buying decisions may not serve us well. So learning to identify and understand our underlying money scripts, our cognitive biases, our beliefs, the emotions that are surrounding uh, the motivation to buy are just invaluable for making better financial choices. So uncovering these before we go searching to make a major financial purchase can really pay huge dividends. I mean, I can just fantasize today about being a real estate agent. <laughs> and uh, I worked as a fiduciary in the later, latter stages of my real estate career, maybe say the last 20 years. So I had a fiduciary duty to my my buyers. And I think it would be wild to sit down with them and saying, you know, before we even go looking for a house, here's the KMSI-R money script inventory. You know, here's some, uh, here's some exercises to do. Let's really boil down the, the real needs and uh, the real money beliefs, the bedrock ones before we um, come up with what we're even looking for and what our needs really are so that we can really make an informed decision. So we can come up with a real touchstone of what it is that we're really looking for. I think that would be fascinating. I don't know of a real estate agent that works that way. I'm sure there's got to be some. But uh, I, I kind of wonder if a buyer would take the time to do that work before they, they went out looking. So anyway, thank you for indulging me and wondering about all that. So that's uh, money scripts and buying large purchases. I hope that was uh, insightful for some of you. Again, thank you for your uh, emails and your kind uh, comments regarding the podcast and remember about monthly open hours and uh, hopefully some of you can uh, can join me so thank you and take care we will talk with you next week thanks for joining me rick kaler for another episode of financial therapy it's not just about the money this is where i combine the nuts and bolts of financial advice with the emotions that drive making them remember every financial behavior whether it appears illogical to you or others, makes perfect sense when we understand the underlying beliefs, feelings, and thoughts. Sign up for my weekly blog at financialawakenings.com. I hope you'll join me again for our next episode.